And if you have a copy of God's Word, I ask that you open it up and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We are picking up our study of Ephesians. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, if you would just raise your hand, we'll make sure that somebody gets it to you. And then also as you came in, you will notice if you open up your bulletin that you have a half sheet of Scripture that's been folded and put in there. Uh, a segment of Romans chapter 7. But I understand sometimes when people come in as couples, somebody gets it, the other person might not. That's fine, I understand that. But we have extra copies uh, to give out in case you would need one or for some reason you did not get a bulletin. Oh, thank you. Excellent. Oh, she already took them. Yeah, she's got them. So thank you. If you need one, just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. We'll make sure that everybody's on the same page. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're returning to Ephesians chapter 3. We spent quite a while dealing with verses 1 through 13. We're going to blitzkrieg that in just a moment. But what I really want us to focus on today is the fact that we're moving into Paul's second prayer that he offers up in this letter. When Billy Graham, being interviewed many times about this, having a long ministry, when he was asked the question, out of everything that you've done, out of everything that God has given to you, what do you regret? Now that's a good question. How many people are familiar with Billy Graham's ministry? How many people here were saved, came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through Billy Graham's ministry? He's had a profound effect. We went to the Billy Graham Training Center in North Carolina years ago, taking a group of college students there. And they actually had a museum you could go down. And they had his travel pulpit that was there. And it was plexiglass covered so he could slide his Bible in there and the wind not get it. I thought that was pretty ingenious, right? But they would have these large murals that stood 8 to 10 feet tall and would probably stretch about 20 or 30 feet wide. Panoramic shots. Here's Billy Graham on this stage with his arms outstretched. And you can see 1 million people from the Czech Republic filling in all of this area. Trees around them and everything, but just bodies as far as you could possibly see. It's a ministry. It's unparalleled. But when he was asked, what do you regret? He said, I wish I would have prayed more. Out of all the things to say, he wishes he would have prayed more. There is not an area of our lives that is not deserving of a hearing with God. And so often we run the risk of wanting to regulate or compartmentalize something and saying, you know what, this is mine, God doesn't need this. I'm in the driver's seat on this one. God can just sit in the back. Well, if I come to God with it, he might actually do something. It's kind of the point, isn't it? In two days, we have truck or treat. We've invited any lost soul that is around or saved soul that is around to come enter within our walls for one reason, one reason only. Not just to sugar them up in a literal sense, but so that we can tell them about the fact that God loves them so much He put His Son on the cross just to have a relationship with them. 
I hope you're praying about that right now. We make a mistake when we want to regulate certain areas away from God's presence. But a good question to ask is, is what should we pray? Some of us feel inadequate to pray. I don't know how to pray. I'm not really for sure what to say. Usually those are the best prayers because they're incredibly honest. Especially when it's not out loud. That way you're not worried about impressing other people with your church and ease. You know? Some of us like to pray in King James. That's okay. God has a translator. It's all right. Not a big deal. It's messing with you. But in chapter 3, verse 1, I want to show you something really interesting. You'll have to give me two minutes of a segue, and then we'll branch right into it, okay? For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Does everybody see the dash? For us, that would be like a... Pause for a second. I might need to say something about that. And so Paul does. So we'll get back to the beginning of this in a second because this other part is everything that we've been dealing with. So if you notice, if indeed you have heard of the, what's the word church, don't get it wrong, the dispensation. A dispensation is a stewardship and a stewardship is a dispensation. The stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you. Whoa, that show up there? It is on there. What happened? Oh, that's terrible. Hold on. Oh, no. Yeah. Bear with me. Man, you guys are a patient bunch. You love it when bad stuff happens to me, I can tell. Like, that's my favorite part. That's the only reason why I come to church, right? Ah, there we go. That by revelation, by special revealing, unfolding to Paul, there was made known to me the mystery, something that's always been true, but has a particular point in time of its unveiling. As I wrote before in brief, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations, now remember that, those are past dispensations, was not made known to the sons of men as it's now been revealed to the holy apostles and prophets. Everybody see that word now? Present. Presently. By the way, we do. I forgot about this. We do have Ephesians booklets if you want for chapter 3 to mark in. Anybody want any of those? You have those? Some of us have those. Zach, can you help me out? I'm sorry, man. Zach has got his eight colored pens out. Six. The Lord loves our youth pastor. That's fantastic. Thank you, ma'am. But if anybody's interested in that, yeah, that's okay, just a few. One, two, two, three, four, good. Three, it's okay. Notice, it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets, presently speaking, okay? To be specific, Gentiles are one, fellow heirs, two, fellow members of the body, and three, fellow partakers or partners of the promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the dispensation of the mystery which for ages has been hidden. 
Ages pass, but the church is a brand new thing. Jew and Gentile into one body. There is absolutely no discrimination whatsoever that is ever acceptable because all are under grace and all are in Christ. And those who believe are in Christ make up the body. Which has been hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold wisdom, now remember, this has an eternal purpose. And we're going to see that here in the next passage or the next verse. There's an eternal purpose here. Watch, that the manifold wisdom of God might now presently be made known through the church, us, to who? The rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Demons, false gods, all that people would make idols from. God's wisdom in this brand new thing that he always had planned called the church preaches a message of how great and grand his wisdom is and it is telling spiritual, supernatural, and demonic authorities, no, God is doing his work. Everybody knows there had to be a party going on whenever the crucifixion took place. Not knowing the manifold wisdom of God that would bring that to an abrupt end through resurrection. All partying stopped at that moment. The idea is that God is now progressing His message through the church and He has supernaturally endowed us with the indwelling Holy Spirit, complete forgiveness of sins, and spiritual gifts to be used during this time of which God will work supernaturally through each and every person that is part of the body of Christ. In doing so, the question would be, Well, how come you're not working with us on that? Because you tried to take rule by force. These people came to the end of themselves recognizing their need for a Savior and responded to the way in which I have given Him salvation. They've actually been bought out of a destiny in the lake of fire. There's a big difference there. Notice, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which God carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith. That's the only way. The only way that any of this is ever accomplished. It's never by effort. Anytime that we think that our effort needs to be brought to the table in this, we have automatically decided we're going to side with self and flesh. It's got to be by faith. Faith in Him. Then He says, Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for reason why they are for your glory tribulation now because of the gospel leading to glory in the future suffering always precedes glory and the more that we suffer for the sake of christ in this life the more that we're persecuted because we hold fast to the word of god we hold fast to the testimony of his name We won't shut up witnessing when people tell us to stop it or we don't have an opinion to bring to the table. Stop. We have the Word of God. It has no error. It has no falsehood. It is actually breathed out by Him. It is the standard by which all things exist. So for some reason to say it doesn't have a seat at the table is a very temporal, finite, in that person bias of an attitude that they don't like it. Why? Because it shines a great blinding light upon the sin that people love so dearly. So don't discount it as some reason it's not credible or it doesn't have a seat at the table. It is the table. 
Everything else either stays or falls based on it. Now, he moves forward here. For this reason, does that sound familiar? Go back up to verse 1. What does it say? For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What reason? Okay, so we all take a couple steps back into chapter 2, verse 19. The conclusion he comes to about Jew and Gentile is he tells the Gentiles, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and are God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. There they are brought up again. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, the church, being fitted together is growing into a holy temple into the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So in other words, in Acts chapter 2, the gospel comes through the apostles. They preach it there on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Thousands of people get saved. And for about 8 to 10 years, that's all you have is Jews coming to faith in the gospel. And then once the persecution of Stephen happens, everybody but the apostles spread out and go everywhere. But they have this message of life now. And nobody told them any different or any better, so they start sharing it with Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. Start sharing it with Gentiles. Well, praise God, eventually that gospel comes to me. I hear the message of Jesus Christ, and he loved me, died for me, coming back to get me, praise the Lord. I get saved. Gentiles start getting saved. The next thing they know, oh my gosh, the grace of God is not just sitting here with the Jews and it's a brand new thing they put him in, but this body of Christ, this brand new entity, this new man, this one new building, is actually encompassing of all Gentiles who would believe as well. And it eliminates any dividing walls, it eliminates any biases, it destroys every prejudice, and it brings us to the fact that we are all one in one reason. Not that we all have to look the same, be the same, act the same, dress the same, none of that. It's not uniformity. But it's the fact that in Christ we've been brought to a divine unity. A supernatural gathering together and a oneness in the body of Christ. So that's why he says, that's why he was starting his prayer based off that truth. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Here we go. Posture. We're entering into prayer. It is prayer mode. All prayer is unto the Father. We tell Jesus we love Him, we thank Him for what He's done, but the reason why He died, forgiving sin, providing for us a brand new life, but remember, His blood is what paves the way into the Holy of Holies where God dwells. Remember when He died. Everybody remember that? The veil in the temple ripped. And if I recall correctly, I didn't research this, but if I recall correctly, that veil was at least an inch thick. An inch of cloth. Top to bottom. Done. Was it more? It was four inches? Man, I keep you warm at night, won't it? Good gravy. Done. Opened. And this was a place that the high priest could only go once a year to offer atonement for sin. And next thing you know, he just decides to blow the door right off of it when Jesus died. Why? Because Jesus has now satisfied that everything that God ever required in order to have a relationship with you and me. 
and there's nothing for us to do at all, works, commitment, anything, devotion, none of it. He wants none of it. Why? Because we can't do it perfectly. So his son does it all perfectly for us, and he offers it to us as a free gift. And he says, if you want to receive this, just believe it. That's how you receive it. That is the gospel. So in doing that, all prayer is before the Father because the blood of Christ paves the way to the Father. Now notice, from the Father, who is He? From whom every family in heaven, ah, so notice, that supernatural, do abbreviation there, and on earth, doesn't matter who you are, we'll just call that natural maybe, derives its name. Of whom everybody stems from. Even if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, it doesn't change the fact that He's still God. It doesn't change the fact that He's still your Creator. It doesn't change the fact that when you were in your mother's womb, He was still carefully knitting you and crafting you together. You can live in denial of Him, but that doesn't change the truth. Many people have beliefs that are contrary to the Word of God. It didn't hurt the Word of God one bit. So that's what He's getting at here. This reverence of coming into the Father's presence Now notice this. Remember this principle. Prayer is asking. Very important. We come to Him and we adore Him for who He is. Yes, but that's adoration. We come to Him and confess our sins. Yes, but that's called confession. But when we talk about what prayer is, it's petitioning. It's asking something of God. And Paul cuts straight to the chase. What is he asking God? That he would grant you, and I love this, according to the riches of his glory. This is a measurement. And notice that it is nothing short of divine. What kind of budget, what kind of bucket do we need? Yeah, I guess. To measure the riches of God's glory. Bigger than this? Could I hold it? Could I lift it? Could I look at it? I think it would probably sizzle my eyeballs out, personally. Because I'm not in an immortal body. I've not been perfected yet, but it will happen. According to the measures, according to the riches of His glory. How rich is God in glory? Infinite. There's the measure. What's Paul saying? Right? Notice, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened. Yeah. With power. Yeah. In fact, the word for this is where we get the idea of dynamic power. But notice it comes through His Spirit. And the strengthening with power needs to happen not just going through the doorway of the Spirit, in the inner man. Some of us lift weights religiously. This has nothing to do with that. It's talking about strength. It's talking about power. Okay? Don't we read where the Apostle Paul says, but in my weakness, your power is perfected? Yeah. When I am weak, then I am strong. This has nothing to do with our bodybuilding. In fact, with as much of our culture being so obsessive about the human physique, we could all take a really good sobriety test right now and ask the question, do I, do I minister to my inner man as much as I minister to my outer man? I think we'll find that there's a large gap there that maybe we need to rethink. 
because for some reason physical health has become a dominant factor and spiritual health has been on the decline for quite a while. Now what does he mean? If I came to you, Scott, I'm praying that you would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. What? Thanks for praying for me. Somebody call somebody. Right? What does that mean? What does it mean? The inner man. Do we know? Do we know? What does Paul mean by the inner man? Some things to get in contact with real quick before we journey on this. And I will try to keep you're going to be kept late. <laughs> the Packers are playing, so it's okay. Um. <laughs> but um, everybody remember this. Ephesians is divided up into two sections. The first three chapters are dealing with everything about our position in the Lord. So when we deal with chapter 1, we're dealing about all the privileges that we have in Christ. When we deal with chapter 2, we're dealing with our glorious position by grace of which we have been placed in Christ. And now we're talking about the glorious plan that God is unfolding. And all of it has nothing to do with us except we are the recipients of these things. That's it. He has not called for any action whatsoever on our behalf. He has not ever said, you guys need to get busy doing this. He hasn't commanded a thing. It's just him simply praying something that has already got a factual basis for us because it is already given freely to us in Christ. It's part of our every spiritual blessing. We all have an inner man that we're dealing with. Now, give me a minute because the Scriptures will unfold this. When we move forward, take a look at Romans 7. This will be where you want to pull out your handout that you have. And we're going to go through this briefly. I want to explain some things because this is probably the best unfolding of what goes on here. But many people have read Romans 7 and they've either concluded A, it's way too confusing to get into, or they've concluded B, this is talking about Paul before he became a believer in Christ. Now if we know anything about how Paul writes, he always writes in a chronological order. In Romans, he starts us out with, hey, how you doing? By the way, everybody's sinful and so are you. That's how he starts it out. And then he says, however, there's nothing righteous that you can do whatsoever to be accepted by God, but that's okay. He gave his righteousness for you and it's been manifested in his son and the law had nothing to do on our behalf with making that happen. It's God's righteousness apart from any obedience on our part being made and it's actually a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. If you believe in him, you are now justified. That word means that God now declares you righteous in all of eternity. Even though we don't act righteous, think righteous, and we oftentimes don't be righteous, look righteous, I don't know how you want to say that. But there's a lot about us that is skewed from the fact that God has declared us righteous because we're righteous in our position. Why? Because our position when we believe in Jesus goes from unregenerate to regenerate goes from in the world to in Christ. And we have now been backing up the U-Haul, loading it up and being moved into a brand new place and we have brand new real estate in the person of Jesus. He then goes on to talk about how we are sanctified. And our reality is is that we're actually dead to sin and we're alive to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, I don't have to use my body to sin anymore. 
But when you get to Romans 7, there's a problem. The idea is, well, I want to live obedient for the Lord. So I guess I better, and then I should, and I oughta, and then... And next thing you know, we start autoing and bettering and shooting ourselves to death. And we put all of this weight on ourselves to perform for the Lord when that doesn't have anything to do with it at all. And because we get so focused on performance, we all become really, really great legalists at heart. In fact, I think there's something important for us to think about. If we have been in the world for so long, And if the Lord, through His grace, has now brought us into this brand new relationship, it didn't have anything to do with us, I'm just adding sin to the reasons why I need to be saved, okay? So it has nothing to do with me. But in doing so, if becoming a legalist is really easy, if it's really easy for me to look at my brothers and sisters in Christ and tear them down and judge them and talk about how much better and obedient that I am, then I might want to take a stop in my life and back up and say, why is it so easy for me to be so righteous? Here's the reason why. Because it's everything to do with self-righteousness. So if I find myself really easy to become a legalist, there might be a problem because what I'm actually finding is is that sin is creeping in. And it's imitating. It's a pseudo-idea of what it is to be a Christian. Christian, Christianity is never about self-righteousness. It's always about God's righteousness. That's the difference. So now, are we picking this up in the middle of the argument? Let me show you some things. We know that the law is spiritual. The law of God is not bad. So if you have it, I'm going to ask you to mark a few things on here so that you would see the difference here. I think it would clear a lot of things up. We know that the law is spiritual. The law is not bad. But I am of what? Flesh. That's the problem. Sold into bondage to sin. Now, a couple things. Flesh does not equal body. That's important to understand. God is a fan of the body. 1 Corinthians 6, you go through there and he talks about how important it is to be taking care of your body. What it is in order to make sure that you're not doing crazy things with your body. So he's for the body. It's not, oh my gosh, this body's making me sin and I just need to get rid of it. Well, what about when Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's going to extremes there. That's a hyperbolic statement that he's using. He's trying to show you how seriously you should take sin. And so he's given an illustration that everybody can gravitate towards. So notice it says here, you're sold into bondage into sin. This is singular. And here's what this means. It means the sin principle. I don't even know if i got enough room. Inside of every one of us, we automatically have something that makes us want to sin. We're sinners by birth. We're sinners in our very constitution. So when we finally do, at two years old, say that lie. Is that about when... Yeah, yeah, okay. Big big nod for my wife. Two, okay? And you start to see those wonderful, adorable, sinful tendencies come out. Isn't he so cute? No, he's a sinner and I'm having to deal with it all the time. That's what's going on. Where does that come from? Notice it doesn't have to be taught. Why? Because it's hardwired. And so it just comes out. So when we talk about sin, S-I-N, We're talking about the very principle within us that wants to do repeatedly wrong things all the time. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for sins, plural. When he died for sins, those are our multiple offenses against God. And so they no longer count in a category between me and him. They're no longer an obstruction in order for me to have a clear relationship with him. They've died, been paid for, gone, finished, 
out the door. I don't have to worry about that. But what I find happening is I still have sin dwelling in me that wants to do bad stuff. And so when we move through here, notice he says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. Why? Because this is a situation of flesh versus spirit. So when you come to faith in Christ, and especially when you begin to grow, all of a sudden you recognize this weird tension. I still want to put on the Beatles' White Album and listen to it backwards, but that's probably not a good thing for me to do. (laughs) Thank the Lord they made CDs. You can't play those backwards, can you? You know? But you see what I'm saying? There's something crazy going on there. They're backmasking me somehow. So now I've got this tension. Why? Because I really like the Beatles. I can't listen to them, but I really like the Beatles. But there's nothing probable that comes up, but I really like the Beatles. Everybody see this? That's how it is. And all, regardless of what it is, that's a goofy example. But regardless of what that is, there's all of a sudden this tension, this struggle. Because we want to live for the Lord. We've been given a brand new life. We've got this brand new appreciation that we've undertaken. Why would we not want to serve Him with our entire being? We do want to serve Him. We do want to serve Him. Don't you want to serve Him? Then why can't we do it? That's the question. So notice it says here, what I'm doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do. You know who that is? Watch this. See the I? I'm not doing the things I would like to do. This right here is the inner man. I'm going to break this down and fill it out for you in just a minute. The inner man is who you really are in relation to Jesus. Because you want to do those good things. I would love to do this, but... Notice I'd like to do it, but... I find myself doing the very thing that I hate. Why? Because that's flesh. But, if I do the very thing I don't want to do, what's that? Flesh. I agree with the law. Pause. What part of him agrees with the law? The inner man. The inner man loves the law of God. Why? Because it's righteous and it's sinless and that's everything that the inner man desires. Anytime you see something that happens in the world and you say, that is so wrong, you're automatically making a judgment statement on that. How in the world could that happen? I can't believe they got away with that. That's unjust or that's unjust. And we start putting all these declarations upon it. Well, why is it unjust? Well, why is it wrong? Well, how do you know that? And there's something in us that is so connected with God that we cry out and say, this is absolutely wrong. This should not be happening. That's the inner man in us crying out. Notice, I agree with the law. What happens? Confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it. I. No longer is the inner man the one who's falling prey to this. Because the inner man wants to do right stuff. But sin, singular, the sin principle, the problem is the flesh. Notice, it's sin that dwells in me. As a believer, the Holy Spirit also dwells in you. How do you make sense of that? That's where the war is. That's where it's happening. That's where the conflict resides. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Nothing good dwells in him, that's his flesh, for the willing is present in me. There's the inner man. I want to do it. 
Everybody notice this word? Will? Everybody see that? The will. That is the desire inside of you that you want to see this good thing come about. But for some reason, I can't get it from here out through here and come out here or here. I can't do it. What is the roadblock that's happening with that? Spirit versus flesh. Notice the will is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Why? Flesh. For the good I want, I want the good. There's the inner man. I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. Is this autobiographical or what? It is. You're like, I've never had the Bible resonate with me in such a true way. Good grief. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it. Why? Because the I is the inner man. Is blue showing up good? Blue's doing a good job. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin. There's the principle which dwells in me. Flesh. Now here's where it gets confusing. Okay? And the reason is, is because if you look in your New American Standard Bible, you will find that when it says the word principle, here in verse 21, Look over in the margin. You'll have a little notation next to it. And in the margin it says law. Literally the word is law. And what this means, law, is it's not the law of Moses, but I find it to be a standard or a truth. I find then the law, the standard, the fact that evil is present in me. Flesh. The one who wants to do good in the inner man. For I joyfully concur. When's the last time you joyfully concurred with anything? But think about what Paul's saying here. This is just how emotionally wrapped into this he is. I joyfully concur with the law of God in where? Notice that. He tells you the entire time. This is one of another instance where this is brought up. The inner man, the phrase, is only used three times in the New Testament. This is the second time besides what we saw in Ephesians 3. So notice this. I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. In other words, the inner man is so in sync with what God wants done that the law can actually be embraced by that person because it's good. That doesn't mean that we ever perform it. Jesus Christ has died to set us free from the law. We are not under the obligation of the law. But recognize what God is doing. Let me show you this. But I see a different law. Same word as principle was used in the previous part, okay? But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind. Now pause. There's a ton here. I see a different law a different fact or standard or truth in my members. I've got to admit there's something wrong within me. And it wants to war and beat at and just take up arms all the time against the law of my mind. Same word as before. Against the law of my mind. Pause. This tells us that the law of my mind is the inner. Stay on there, I. Man, 
And what is the different law waging war? It's the flesh. I find that my flesh is always wanting to beat up on my spirit. And my spirit's always seeking to be victorious over my flesh. The law of my mind. Does everybody see that? Okay, just me. That's great. Does everybody see the word mind there? The computer just took the box away from me. So did you see it? Okay. What was the word that we checked out before that? What was the other word I told you to pay attention to? Everybody remember? Will. The will. Pay attention, guys. Mind. Will. Notice. And making me a prisoner of the law of sin, of the fact, the truth, of sin, singular, the sin principle in me, which is in my members. We're calling it the flesh. I love this. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? What is that? God, save me from myself. Do you recognize that the greatest enemy you have right now is you? He came to save us from the world, the devil, and the flesh. The world outside influence, the devil overarching, tempting, and sophistry within this current world system, but the greatest problem I've got going on every moment of every day is right here. And it's constantly in a fight. Because every time I try to set out to do good, it is trying to wrestle me and arrest me on the ground. Every time. This declaration right here is massive because Paul is showing us, he's teaching us something. An end of self. Who will set me free from the body of this death? Now I'm going to say this. I want you to think about it before you pick up your cabbages and chuck them up here, okay? If Romans 7 resonates with you, to an almost unnerving degree. That tells you that in some way as a Christian, you're still in bondage to the law. You're still in bondage to expectation. You're still in bondage to performance. You're still in in bondage to this idea of, well, if I were a good Christian, I would do this. Stop. We're already worried about here and here before we ever got worried about here. God changes people from the inside out, not the outside in. And so what we do is once we've been a Christian, especially if we don't have good security of our salvation, we wait to see where the wind's going to blow on this one. Oh, well, that was a really bad sin. I can't possibly be saved if that's the case. Stop. Did you do anything to get saved? No. How could you do anything to get unsaved? You couldn't even save yourself. For somehow you just got super powerful in order to unsave yourself? No, it's all the gift of God. It's all the grace of God. But if I've stepped into this performance-based mentality, and all of a sudden that's what's going to rule my Christian existence. Well, I need to keep this, 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 this. No. That's you trying. The purpose of the law was to create an airtight case against us in order to convince 
and convict us of exactly how exceedingly sinful we all are. It can't redeem. It can't save. It certainly doesn't give us the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't operate like our fudging standards do today. It's holy and righteous because it's right. It's wonderful and awesome because it's written of God. But good grief, we don't like to deal with it because when we look at it, it condemns us. And guess what? It's doing exactly what it was designed to do. There is no hope in trying to keep the law of God. None. And so when somebody cries out, wretched man that I am, here's what they're saying. I'm done trying. And God says, finally. I've been letting you struggle through all this business for so long to try to bring you to the point where you would recognize that there's absolutely no percentage of salvation in yourself even after you're saved. What's God trying to do? He's trying to get the saved saved. People that have already come to know Him in justification, but He's trying to teach them the way of sanctification is not keeping rules. It's by you dying to you. Coming to the end of you, throwing up your hands and say, I got nothing. And God's like, good, because I've had this for the whole time. We're ready to get the show on the road. Why? Because He is the one who does the work through us. Not me. Not us. This is why when Jesus says, if anybody would follow after me, first thing, deny himself. Gosh, we're going to be there for the next 10 years on this one. There's a lot of self to deny. The sooner we can come to that conclusion that I can't trust me and that whatever I think is in my best interest is actually incredibly sinful, the better off I am. So let's get there. Take up your cross. And get in line behind Jesus because He's going to take you places that you can only go with Him. Get rid of me. Be willing to suffer and follow the Savior. We're coming to that point in America. But if we don't come to that point here, we won't handle that. All of a sudden, we're becoming pre-crucifixion Peters. I don't know Him. Who? Get away from me. Well, I went to that church because I need to use the bathroom just because you saw me there. We'll come up with all kinds of reasons to save our own neck. Jay came in to use the bathroom and stayed. You know, I don't know. That's where I was. Look what he says here. He gives you the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's where the hope is. Now watch. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of sin. Teenagers say it this way, flesh is going to flesh. That's what it's going to do. That's all it can do. It can't do anything else. The flesh is going to sin. And so I need to be rid of it. Done with it. No longer trusting in myself. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now it goes on to say, in all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. In other words, you're getting out of your way so you know what He's calling you to better, but you've got to get rid of you. The greatest deterrent to living for Jesus Christ is us. Is us. 
Look over at 2 Corinthians 4. I want to show you the other place where this is mentioned. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is talking about being persecuted for the faith. The fact is, is that the more and more that affliction and accusations and all of these things come down on Christians, you actually find out that what you are doing in that moment is you're participating in the sufferings of Christ. Why? Because He just assumes suffer and die than sin. So when we find ourselves suffering for righteousness' sake or suffering for Christ's name, we use those kind of little uh, titles on the idea of what's going on here. What we're actually saying is, is I would much rather hold fast to the Lord than to sin to get out of a situation. Those will not be pleasant times, but we have to recognize what God is doing. And so if you notice in chapter 2, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Why? Life's terrible. Everybody's beating me. People are setting my mail on fire. I'm not a happy person right now because I've been clinging to Jesus. But through, though our outer man is decaying, and that actually is our body, that has nothing to do with the flesh. Do we need any convincing that the body is decaying? None. Yet, our inner man is being renewed day by day, every day. Every day, the inner man is being renewed. For momentary light affliction in this life, now, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Notice the now, and notice that it's far beyond all comparison. Whatever you're suffering and enduring now, guess what? God will reward. Why? Because you were faithful in this time. And He wants to heap more riches and blessing upon you. Look what it says. While we look not to the things which are seen now, because that's how the body's going to suffer, but we look at the things which are not seen. Future. That's what keeps you going. For the things which are seen are temporal. They will pass Away, they're only here for a temporary time, but the things which are seen are eternal. So now I want to reacquaint you with a friend that we've seen many times. Every single person is trichotomous. Not a hippopotamus. Trichotomous. And here's what that means. We're made up of three parts. Just as there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God designed us in in His image and His likeness. We have a spirit in the middle. This part right here is our soul and the outer portion that reaches touch with the world is our body. Everything that God is doing, He desires to do from the inside out. Everything that Satan and the world wants to do, they want to do from the outside in. But this is how it works. And so whenever we believe in Christ, it evicts the old man out, the old master of indwelling sin out to these two rings. The Holy Spirit comes in, completely cleanses us new, and decides that he likes the place so much he's going to take up a permanent residence. Have my mail forwarded to the spirit of Jeremy. There it is. And so everything going on spirit-wise is going to be going on that is in perfect resonation with everything that God asks. But there's a problem. The soul, the suke. Notice that the suke is made up of mind, Will and emotions. Mind, will, and emotions. Didn't we see the idea of the will willingly? The idea of I will serve the law of God with my mind? The soul, our mind, will, and emotion desires 
to be so deeply connected with the Spirit all the time. But when we let the influences of the world come in through the body, it arouses the flesh and starts to draw our mind, will, and emotions away from the Lord. So what is he saying? The inner man is our soul being in solid compliance with our spirit in which the Holy Spirit dwells perfectly and permanently. The flesh is the enemy of this working. We will find that we will finally start doing what we know we ought to be doing only when we decide to come to the end of ourselves and we bring two broken and bleeding hands to Jesus and say, just use me. Or maybe it actually needs to be more like this so he'd finally get a hold of us. Believers need to be arrested by Jesus. Remember, salvation's a free gift. We can very much step into eternity and have forgiveness of sin, but because we've been trained according to the ways of this world, we still live like the world for a long, long time. But this is why we speak encouragement to a one another's life. This is the reason why we set up study of the Word of God. This is the reason why we're praying for one another. And notice that the reason why Paul prays this is because he knows that is the very beginning of how this begins to get enacted. It has to come from the spiritual to us. And so when he prays that you would be strengthened with power through his Spirit dwelling in the middle, in the inner man, he's asking that this relationship between these two areas right here would be increased so that they would be more resistant to sin and more leaning upon the Lord Jesus for every single thing that you ever need in your life. Miles Stanford said it this way, self is our greatest enemy and Christ is our only hope. So God actually uses the law and this idea that we, because we all do it, we all come into this performance-based acceptance that we have now that we're Christians to either prove that we're saved or to reassure us that we're saved, show others that we're saved. I fit right in with your cool little church culture and all that stuff. None of that. Forget all that stuff and just be about Jesus and the church culture will happen. So the Lord makes us Sorry, the Lord makes us acutely aware of our exceeding sinfulness so that we will abandon all hope of self and cling to Christ. That's the goal. Now, why should we pray that God would strengthen the inner man? What's the purpose? Well, the inner man needs to be stronger. Okay, cool. But for what reason? Guys, you're pumping iron for a reason. Why? Why? Muscles. That's not a why. To win a fight. Right? We're going to fight. To look good. Be in shape. Want to be healthy. Single guys, why do you pump iron? Exactly. You see what I'm saying? Because I'm going to Virginia Beach. That's why. Yes, exactly. That's why you do it. We all have motives of why we got to exercise out. It's no different. Why would Paul pray this prayer? Let me ask you the question. When's the last time you prayed this prayer? It's a biblical prayer. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. I find that this prayer has a lot more quality and substance to it than a lot of the junk that I bring before the Lord. Lord, my belly's not feeling good this morning. Those fruity pebbles were not a good idea. Please redeem me from my sin. I know he wants to hear everything, but come on, man. You know? Why should we pray? Go back to Ephesians 3. Go back to Ephesians 3. Let's see why. Notice what the prayer is, verse 16, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. Massive measurement here. 
to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Why? So that, remember, more times than not, when the New American Standard uses the idea of so that, He is giving you a reason. Because if this is the case and it comes about, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Your heart is the central seat of your being. Now you might say, wait a second, I thought when I became a believer in Christ, not only did the Holy Spirit take a presence in me, but Christ now became indwelling. I mean, isn't it Christ in me, the hope of glory that I'm told about in Colossians 1? Yes. But what's interesting about this is this word right here. So I know that you all be going to Amazon and throwing this in your cart. Weiss word studies. Here's what he says. The word dwell. It's katoikesai, I guess. Mary can say it better than me. Made up of oikeo, which means to live in as a home, and kata, which means down. Thus, to settle down and to be at home. The expanded translation is that Christ might finally settle down and feel completely at home in your hearts. If the saint lives in conscious dependence upon and yieldedness to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will make room for the Lord Jesus in the heart. And the life of the saint, by eliminating from his life things that are sinful and of the world, and thus enable the saint to make the Lord Jesus feel completely at home in his heart. Wonderful condescension of heaven's King to be content to live in a believer's heart and to have fellowship with Him. R.A. Torrey said it this way, Nothing else will plunge a man in deeper despair than to try to imitate Christ in his own strength. Instead of imitating Him, we should open our hearts wide for Him to come in and live His own life out through us. Christ in us is the secret of the Christian life. The Christian life has never been, well, Jesus did this, I ought to do that. Newsflash, you can't. So all striving in that direction is met with immediate resistance. Because the Spirit so badly wants those things to happen, the inner man wants that to happen, and the flesh says no. Well, I'm going to get it done. Well, I want to feed 5,000 people. Actually, had some guy come sit down with me a long time ago and said, yeah, I'm working on replicating the miracles of Christ. I said, how's that going? You know what his response to me was? Well, I haven't raised a dead person yet. And I know I didn't have to say it because the cartoon bubble came over my head and said, duh. You can't do it. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do it. If your right hand causes you sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Deal with sin drastically. You can't do it. You can never do it. You will never ever, even as a redeemed Christian, be able to do it unless you recognize that self has no answers at this table. And just as we died with Him when He died on the cross, we crucify the flesh and get out of His way so that Jesus can be Jesus. This world is not attracted to me. This world is not attracted to you and the reason why they should come to Christ. But they will be attracted to Christ in you. There will be a light that they cannot deny of why they need the saving message. They need the gospel. But until we come to the terms of self will not suffice, it won't work. 
Our life, if it needs to be anything, needs to be a life of deference. Defer to Christ. Defer to Christ. Defer to Christ. It's Christ. It's Him. Not me. Well, how will we get this accomplished? Well, probably a good thing for me to do first is do what Paul did. Lord, I pray that You would please strengthen me with power through Your Spirit in my inner man. And then present your body to Him to be used. Not that I conjured or came up with something that might be a good idea. Crucify that idea. Christ's life in us is so much better. And the sooner we come to terms with that idea, the better off we will do. Imitating Christ, get rid of that idea. Only Christ can imitate Christ. And that's exactly what God desires to do. Through you and me. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as believers in Jesus, we need to ask one question honestly. Are you at home in our hearts? Do you dwell soundly in harmony there? Have we been getting in your way? Or to think about the most unsettling thing that you deal with, in our lives is us. And it's also the thing that unsettles us the most as well. I'm sure every one of us in the inner man says, I so desire for Christ to settle down and to feel at home within me. Father, help bring us to a realization that we must come to the end of ourselves for that to be a reality. That His home would be firmly established in us and immovable in us because we're constantly deferring every situation to Him. Desiring for our mind, will, and emotions to be in complete compliance with Him in all things. Father, thank You that You work with broken people. Thank You that You only will dwell in us by faith. Nothing else. There's no other asking that you have for us simply but to believe. Not just that you saved us from the lake of fire, but that you can save us from self right now. So Lord, please convict our hearts as only your Spirit can. And for all of us here at Grace Bible Church, may we be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inner man so that the Lord Jesus would be at home and completely welcomed regardless of the area in our hearts. We pray that in Jesus' awesome name. Amen.